plea for peace. Pope Francis issues a message to Syria's president. We have a report from Rome. High stakes meeting. President Donald Trump welcomes the leader of Pakistan to the White House. Increased pressure. Protesters take to the streets in Puerto Rico to demand the U.S. territory's governor resign. And helping our common home. Pope Francis reflects on the 50th anniversary of the first person to walk on the moon. On EWTN News Nightly for Monday, July 22nd, 2019. Good evening from Washington, D.C., and thank you for joining us for News from a Catholic Perspective. I'm Wyatt Goolsby. Pope Francis writes a letter to the president of Syria calling on his government to protect the weak and defenseless in his country. In the letter, the Holy Father asks for concrete initiatives on behalf of the Syrian people, including the protection of human life and the release of any political prisoners. Cardinal Peter Turkson delivered the letter, which was written in English earlier today. The civil war in Syria has lasted more than eight years. One human rights group says more than 500,000 people have been killed. Hannah Brockhaus, senior Rome correspondent for Catholic News Agency, joins us now. Hannah, the Holy Father's letter has not been released to the public, but the Vatican Secretary of State is talking about it. What's he saying? Well, Wyatt, Cardinal Pietro Perlin has said that in his letter, Pope Francis asks President Assad to end the humanitarian catastrophe that is going on in his country. Pope Francis also referenced the province of Idlib. Right now, that is the main area of conflict in the country because it is the last rebel-held base. And because of that, government forces are um, air raiding the area. And unfortunately, innocent civilians have been dying and, and are continuing to die in those strikes. It's pretty horrific to think what's been happening there and has been going on now for years. What did Pope Francis say about the political prisoners in Syria? Release of prisoners was one of Pope Francis's concrete actions that he asked for in his letter to Assad. Um, according to a report in 2018, tens of thousands of people have been um, arbitrarily imprisoned in Syria, many of them in unofficial prisons where they may have been tortured or even executed, and that's if they didn't just die because of conditions in the prison itself. So is this thinking about all these issues, is this the first time Pope Francis has tried to intervene in the crisis in Syria? Not at all. In fact, he did send another letter to Assad in December 2016. Um, the Pope has also been really consistent about asking for prayers for peace in Syria, and he often asks for prayers for the Christians in particular in both Syria and throughout the Middle East. And we've been watching all of that carefully, knowing how the Christian community there, both in Syria and the whole region, has been suffering. So our viewers will continue to pray for them as well. Hannah Brockhaus, Senior Rome Correspondent for Catholic News Agency. Thanks for the update, Hannah. Thank you, Wyatt. The search for the remains of a teenager, Emanuela Orlandi, continues at the Vatican. On Saturday, the bones of dozens of people were unearthed from an underground space near a Holy See cemetery. A genetics expert retained by the teen's family says the remains appear to be both adult and non-adult, though they might not be from Orlandi. She went missing in 1983 after leaving her family's apartment in Vatican City. And in Rome, the search continues for the remains of the church's first Filipino-born bishop. 
Bishop Jorge Barlin died a little more than 100 years ago in Italy. The marker for his grave has since been lost. A group of priests from the Philippines is on the hunt to find the remains. For more on this story, including a closer look at the background of Bishop Barleen, visit our partners at catholicnewsagency.com. An archbishop in Iraq says the faith is alive despite the devastation left by ISIS. Archbishop Nathaniel Simon says 20,000 Christians have moved back to the region and houses and churches are being rebuilt. Despite the challenges, he says the faithful has a positive outlook for the future. For more on this story, including an update on whether Christians in the region are receiving aid promised by the United States, visit the National Catholic Register at ncregister.com. Also in Iraq, security forces continue their operation against ISIS. Iraqi soldiers are carrying out searches in a village north of Baghdad. It's the second phase of an offensive aimed at clearing the remnants of the terror group. The operation, called Will to Victory, began two weeks ago. Iraq declared victory against ISIS in 2017, but small pockets of the extremist group have continued to carry out deadly attacks. President Donald Trump says there's tremendous potential between the United States and Pakistan, and he hopes the South Asian country will help the U.S. end the war in Afghanistan. I think Pakistan's going to help us out uh, to extricate ourselves. We're like policemen. We're not fighting a war. If we wanted to fight a war in Afghanistan and win it, I could win that war in a week. I just don't want to kill 10 million people. The president hosted Pakistan's prime minister today in the Oval Office. The two discussed everything from counterterrorism to trade. Kellyanne Conway tells News Nightly there's no reason for taxpayers to fund Planned Parenthood, the nation's largest abortion provider. So we asked her why the administration is delaying their enforcement of the new Title X rule, which is designed to shift funding to qualified women's health centers. Well, I don't see it that way. The president's been very clear on Title X. There are always, there are always uh, reasons to delay implementations of rules that have nothing to do with the substance of the rules, so let me just say that. Conway went on to say it's ridiculous Planned Parenthood takes half a billion dollars in taxpayer money. Join us now with a closer look on the issue is Mallory Quigley, Vice President of Communications for the pro-life Susan B. Anthony List. Mallory, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me, Wyatt. Tell us what is the president's Title X regulation? What is that rule that, that uh, he wants to enforce? Absolutely. It's called the Protect Life Rule, and it's all about drawing a bright line of separation between family planning and abortion. So when the rule was finalized, it said that if you want to continue to receive Title X family planning funding, you cannot perform or promote abortions in the same facilities. So then how do you feel or make of the news, at least, that the White House is delaying this? Right. Well, the delay is only about a month, and there was always going to be time. That's actually written into the final rule itself to give facilities that want to comply some time to change their practices, and comply means divest themselves from abortion. Now, it makes sense that it was a bit delayed, given that really up until a few weeks ago, we didn't know that the rule was even going to be permitted to be implemented. Of course, Planned Parenthood, as soon as it was finalized and other, others in the abortion industry, they went right to the courts, as they always do. And so there was a nationwide injunction that would have prevented the rule from being put into effect while litigation was pending. Mm -hmm. But just earlier this month, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals 
which it's odd to be saying this because the Ninth Circuit is the most liberal of all the Supreme, of all the federal courts, but they have canceled the injunction and so now the rule's able to go into effect. Okay, so I know some pro-lifers were worried about this, concerned about this news there was delay. You're not necessarily saying it's something to worry too much about. I don't think it's something to be concerned about. Compliance is a victory and very radical abortion groups like Planned Parenthood have already said that they're not going to comply, so they stand to lose up to 60 million of taxpayer dollars that they were getting before they won't anymore. Okay, switching gears just a little bit, the former president of Planned Parenthood, Dr. Mm -hmm. Lena Wynn, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times explaining why she left um, this last week. She says she wanted to focus more on health care, not the politics. Now, what do you make of her remarks and, and what do you think that says about the organization itself? I, I think this whole episode has been um, greater evidence than we've ever seen before that Planned Parenthood is all about abortion. They're a highly political organization. They're a, a abortion-centered, profit-driven industry. They weren't interested in Dr. Wen's plans to focus on other healthcare services. Uh, and they've they've shifted back to having a very political leader, um, Alexis McGill, who comes from has a, a long background of advocating for progressive causes. She's not a healthcare advocate, and so I think this is more evidence, um, you know, onto the pile that says Planned Parenthood is a, a profit-driven, abortion-centered business that wants to meddle in politics and make sure that pro-abortion politicians are elected. Uh, they don't really care about women's health. Well, the issue of abortion continues to be put into the public eye thanks to so many pro-lifers, and I know it's going to be continue to be a big deal in the year ahead. Mallory Quigley, Vice President of Communications for the Susan B. Anthony List, thanks so much. Thank you. Leaders in Hong Kong are condemning the recent outburst of violence during protests over the weekend. Violence is not a solution to any problem. Violence will only breed more violence, and at the end of the day, the whole of Hong Kong and the people will suffer as a result of the loss of law and order in Hong Kong. Clashes involving the territory's protest movement escalated late last night. Police launched tear gas at protesters who refused to disband after a massive march. Protesters enter another week in Puerto Rico where the embattled governor said yesterday he won't seek re-election but also won't resign. Ricardo Rosello has faced calls to step down since hundreds of pages of chat messages with his inner circle went public. Protesters packed the streets of San Juan today after embattled Governor Ricardo Rosello refused calls to step down, but said he won't seek re-election next year. I admit that apologizing is not enough. Only my work will help restore the confidence of these sectors and lead to a true reconciliation. The governor's announcement came on the eve of the demonstration planned for today. What the governor has done today is he has added fuel to a fire. The protests fueled by leaked offensive private chat messages between the governor and his inner circle. The chats, just one motivation for protesters on an island that has struggled with poverty, debt, a painstaking recovery from Hurricane Maria in 2017, and allegations of government corruption. We want him gone, that's it. Some 2020 Democratic presidential contenders have also weighed in, some calling for Rosseo to step down. The corruption in his administration, the chat scandal, uh, the use of force against his own people, all of those uh, point toward the fact that he should resign. Last week, 
the president of Puerto Rico's House of Representatives created a committee tasked with looking at the messages and whether the governor committed impeachable acts. Governor Rosseo says he will step down as the president of the new Progressive Party. A strong earthquake in Athens damaged several buildings, including an Orthodox church. The 5.1 magnitude quake sent residents racing into the streets for safety. No serious injuries were reported. Coming up, saying goodbye to a former Supreme Court justice. Welcome back. Tonight, we take a closer look at America's declining birth rates and what it means for big cities across the U.S. The nation now has the lowest number of births in 32 years, and there are concerns the country's urban areas are quickly becoming childless. Joining me now by Skype from Charlottesville, Virginia, to take a look at all of this is Brad Wilcox, Senior Fellow at the Institute for Family Studies. Brad is also the Director of the National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia. Brad, welcome back to the broadcast. Wyatt, it's good to be here with you today. You've been on before to talk about the falling birth rate in the U.S. Derek Thompson of The Atlantic just published a piece entitled The Future of the City is Childless, in which he makes the point that, quote, cities were once a place for families of all classes. Today's cities, however, are decidedly not for children or for families who want children. What do you think are just some of the reasons why there are lower birth numbers in big cities? Well, you know what? I think a big part of the story is about real estate. It's harder to find decent housing. And when the rent's higher, I think people are more likely to hold off both on marriage and having kids as well. And the other thing we're seeing in, in our sort of most dynamic cities is what some have called kind of workism, like kind of an incessant focus on work, the sense that work is where you get your meaning, your friendships, and you know everything else. And that kind of devotion to work, I think, can be intention with a willingness or an openness to have kids as well. So those two things, you know, kind of housing expenses and a devotion to work, I think are not particularly family friendly or kid friendly. Let me follow up with you on that first point about just paying the rent. You've mentioned the role, of course, of affordability plays in all of this. Have big cities just become too expensive for families? Yeah, and no, I think some of our biggest cities, our most dynamic cities like San Francisco, for instance, have really priced out uh, working class and middle class families, or you know, even much of New York City as well. So that's, I think, part of the story that we're seeing here play out in, in this recent downward trend in fertility in America. Well, Brad, some say uh, America is making up for the lower birth rate because we welcome in so many immigrants, so many new residents each year. How do you respond to that? Well, certainly immigrants do boost our population, um, but I think it's also kind of important to acknowledge that if we continue to see fertility rates fall in the U.S., it's going to pose problems and challenges for our economy as a whole down the road. And we're already seeing that there are large parts of the country where falling fertility rates and sort of, you know, just the demographic aging of those communities is leading to sort of uh, shrinking counties across much of the U.S. And that has a negative impact on a number of things, including their, their ability to grow economically. How do you think we as a country can turn this around? Do you think there's something more uh, realistically done at either the local level or even at the federal level? Well, I certainly think kind of taking another look at how we zone for apartments and condos, duplexes and houses is part of the answer here. Making more affordable housing more accessible to Americans, particularly Americans living in our metro areas would be a help. I also think kind of on the cultural front, recognizing the important role that marriage plays in the lives of, of adults, 
um, and the way in which you know kids bring meaning and hope and direction to our lives too, I think would be helpful. And kind of downplaying, if you will, kind of the importance of work. I mean, when all is said and done, kind of where you work um, and how much money you make, you know, are much less important for our sense of meaning, our purpose, and our happiness um, than what's going on in our families. And I think too many young adults are not aware of that simple empirical reality. So many important messages there, and obviously this is a very interesting subject, and we'll, we'll continue to follow. Brad Wilcox, Senior Fellow at the Institute for Family Studies. Thanks so much. Bye. Thanks for having me on today. A ceremony at the Supreme Court today honored former Justice John Paul Stevens. The President and First Lady Melania Trump paid their respects to Stevens, who died last week following a stroke. He served in the Supreme Court for 35 years. Colleagues called him a brilliant man with a deep devotion to the law. He was 99 years old. Up next, the disciplinary action against a former West Virginia bishop and the Pope's comments on the 50th anniversary of the first moonwalk. Matteo Bruni begins his first day as head of the Holy See Press Office. The 43-year-old has worked in the office since 2009. He replaces Alessandro Gizzotti, who served as interim director since the end of last year. Welcome back. Officials are reacting to the Vatican's sanctions against the former leader of the Diocese of Wheeling, Charleston, in West Virginia. The state's attorney general, Patrick Morosi, is calling for the release of the full investigation into Bishop Michael Bransfield. On Friday, the Holy See said Bransfield no longer can live within the diocese. He also may not participate in any public celebration of the liturgy and must make amends for some of the harm he caused. Join me now for more analysis is Dr. Matthew Bunsen, EWTN News Senior Contributor. Matthew, welcome back. Thank you. Let's start by reminding our viewers what Bishop Bransfield is accused of during his time as Bishop of Wheeling, Charleston. Well, in September of last year, at the time of his uh, turning 75, he submitted his resignation. Pope Francis accepted it and then appointed immediately uh, Archbishop William Laurie of Baltimore to oversee an investigation into what turned out to be, uh, based on the investigation led by Archbishop Laurie and the independent review, uh, a series of very serious allegations of sexual and financial uh, misconduct. Uh, and that includes uh, an atmosphere of fear and abuse uh, and intimidation and retribution in the diocese, which then allowed him uh, to undertake, allegedly, uh, episodes of sexual harassment of those under his authority, mm -hmm. uh, as well as a pretty egregious uh, financial uh, misconduct, including, for example, millions of dollars in travel, $180,000 in flowers, and, uh, very famously now, uh, well over $350,000 in gifts uh, to leading clerics around the world and the United States. Let me follow up with you on that last point. How does, the impact, how does this impact the church leaders who may have received cash gifts from Bishop Bransfield? Well, the problem has largely solved itself because in the intervening time that these reports of gifts have been reported in certainly secular media, uh, many of the recipients have returned them. Archbishop Laurie himself readily and publicly acknowledged that the $7,500 or so that he received, he's returned to the diocese. Uh, Cardinal Kevin Farrell in Rome, a Vatican official, an American, uh, has also returned uh, $29,000. Notably, uh, Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano, the former Apostolic Nuncio, who received, I think, $6,000, had already given it to charity. So these bishops who've received these gifts are returning them. More curious and more probably serious uh, is the fact that uh, the Bishop Bransfield allegedly gave financial gifts to those he was actually uh, engaging in sexual harassment. 
Wow, pretty serious accusations. The Vatican wrote that Bishop Bransfield must take pers must make personal amends for some of the harm he caused. What do you think that will look like? What form does that take? Well, that's going to be left to, as the decree states, uh, the decisions of his successor. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't have a new bishop yet in Wheeling, uh, so we'll have to see what that, when he is installed, the new ordinary there decides to do. Amends is not something that occurs in canon law particularly, mm -hmm. so it's a somewhat loose term. What that could look like, again, is going to depend on the person who succeeds Bishop Bransfield as bishop. It could be everything from financial restitution in some form to a very public gesture, uh, some type of public statement or action on the part of Bishop Bransfield, not just to demonstrate his remorse, but also uh, to demonstrate his regret uh, and his repentance uh, for the way he governed his diocese. Any sense of a timetable when they're going to get a new bishop? No, but uh, this new decree, I think, sort of paves the way for the new ordinary coming in. I think it makes his life uh, considerably more easy now that he has a decree to lean on going forward. Okay, so we're going to continue to follow this case. Before we let you go, I want to ask about Matteo Bruni. He's now the head of the Holy See Press Office, as I mentioned. Yeah. What changes, if any, can we expect to see under his leadership? Well, Bruni's appointment... Uh, fluent in English. He speaks, I think, Italian, French, and Spanish. Uh, he is a kind of perfect fit uh, with Pope Francis. He's a longtime associate of the Sant'Egidio community, which deals with the peripheries. So I think he's of the same mindset as Francis. What his appointment really signals is the kind of capstone to many of the reforms that have been ongoing in the communications realm with this new dicastery of communications. But it also reminds us uh, that control of Vatican communications is now squarely with Vatican media. Uh, it's no longer sort of an independent outfit uh, with the sala stampa. So we're going to see much more clear and direct editorial control coming from figures like Andrea Tornielli uh, and Dr. Paolo Ruffini. All right, we'll see how that all plays out. We'll be following it, of course. Dr. Matthew Bunsen, EWTN News Senior Contributor. Thanks again. Good to be with you. Finally tonight, Pope Francis says the moon landing 50 years ago should be inspiration for the common good. Possa il ricordo di quel grande passo per l'umanità accendere il desiderio di progredire insieme. At his Sunday address to pilgrims at the Vatican, the Holy Father also said he hopes the goal of landing on the moon will inspire us to work toward even greater accomplishments. Powerful message there. And on that uplifting note, we conclude our newscast for tonight. We thank you for watching. The entire EWTN News Nightly team, I'm Wyatt Goolsby. We'll be back tomorrow with more news from a Catholic perspective. Good night and God bless.